Arcane forces. Powers beyond the scope of human ken. You've met them before, haven't you, Man-Thing? When strange forces took hold of your once-human form in the swamp on whose edge you now stand. Now, as you watch these two other humans, you sense an ominous pall of evil around them. Can you make yourself want to reach out and touch them, warn them of the danger? If you had a mouth which which to scream, Man-Thing, would you? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. I'm Paul Matthew Carr, your guide through the weird, the wacky, and the often wonderful of 70s swamp-based monster comics. I am terribly excited about this episode because this is the beginning of something new, and in my mind, the start of what makes this comic great. That's right. It's the arrival of Steve Gerber as writer. To be honest, I actually thought about starting the podcast here, as I feel that this is where the character begins to become something unique, something interesting. Obviously, I decided to do the origin issues. I felt they were necessary to get the overall gist of the story, and being a completist, I simply could not bring myself to leave out issues. But starting here, this run by Steve Gerber, is why I wanted to do this podcast in the first place. He was able to take something, something... Which, let's face it, it could have been a pretty bland premise, but he put a bizarre spin on it, and it made it into something more than just a run-of-the-mill monster comic. I don't know if you're picking up on this, but I'm a fan of Steve Gerber. Not just Man-Thing, but his writing for Marvel in general. Not everything he tried worked, but when it did, it was truly innovative, often fantastic, and even when it failed... It was still interesting. But I'll be talking more about Steve Gerber later in the episode. Right now, I want to talk about some news. I didn't think there was ever going to be any current news relating to Man-Thing and pretty much just wrote off any need to do a current events section. But I'll be darned. A couple of things have come up recently that do in fact relate to Man-Thing. One directly and the other admittedly rather tangentially. The first bit of news is Marvel's announcement of Monsters Unleashed. This will be a company-wide crossover event featuring all the monsters in the Marvel Universe. Well, the way it's being described is all the giant monsters in the Marvel Universe, sort of an attack of the Marvel kaiju. Marvel's editor-in-chief, Axel Alonso, has said, If there ever were a monster who stood ten stories high or taller and created mayhem in the Marvel Universe over the last several decades... They're going to be in the story. And editor Mark Panchia, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, has said, Our goal is to cram as many mammoth monsters of Marvel into Monsters Unleashed as will fit on the page. So much alliteration in that sentence. (laughs) Stan Lee would be proud and pleased as punch at the plethora of punctuated prose. (laughs) Wow, pop filter working overtime on that sentence. So... What was I saying? Oh yeah, Monsters Unleashed. Okay, the way it's being hyped is uh, sort of Pacific Rim in the Marvel Universe. Now, at first glance, this would not seem to be tied to Man-Thing or Nexus or, or anything that I am talking about on this show, except for one thing. Monsters Unleashed was a black-and-white magazine back in the 70s. This was an attempt by Marvel to compete with famous monsters of filmland, a magazine devoted to the classic monsters like Mummy and Dracula, Wolfman, etc. 
And since Marvel had their own versions of these public domain characters, they were bundled together under the moniker Marvel Monster Group. You see, at the time, Marvel was publishing things like Tomb of Dracula, which featured Dracula, go figure, Frankenstein's Monster, Werewolf by Night. Uh, That particular book had its titular character, a man named, I'm not making this up, Jack Russell. This character was a man by day and a werewolf by night. And he was a terrier. I mean, terror. Terror of the night. So, uh, (laughs) so many of these characters were given original stories in Monsters Unleashed, as well as, you guessed it, Man-Thing. And it had a Man-Thing story in each issue. So, while the normal size monsters have not been announced as part of this crossover event, I think it's more than likely that they will make an appearance. I mean, by using the title Monsters Unleashed, they are deliberately making a direct reference to that series and deliberately calling for a comparison to that series. So, it makes sense that Marvel would use its horror characters either as adversaries or as weapons to throw at the big kaiju monsters. And I'm hoping that Man-Thing will be part of all that. He's been a team player after all. I mean, Thunderbolts and whatnot. So it could happen. Of course, Marvel could just be using that title as an empty callback and do nothing with the original source material. Still, I think that would be a wasted opportunity. If for no other reason, then I think it would be really cool to see Man-Thing fight Devil Dinosaur. Now, the next bit of news is, as I said, really tangential. It's only related to Man-Thing in the fact that it's another 70s monster-slash-horror character making a mainstream television appearance. I am, of course, talking about Ghost Rider on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Now, I have a confession to make. I like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I know, it's not a popular opinion. And most of the geeky nerd contingent that I am in contact with and listen to do not have a high opinion of this program. But I enjoy it. And look, I am not unaware of the show's limitations, and its flaws are substantial. But I just enjoy the hell out of it. And now, there is actually hell to enjoy in it, in the form of Ghost Rider. Uh, As I record this, there's only been one episode, and it was the reveal of Ghost Rider in the Robbie Reyes version. It looks pretty good. I mean, come on. After the Nicolas Cage debacles, don't you want to see a good version of Ghost Rider? Sure you do. So if you're an Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. hater, I suggest you give this new season a shot. It has a new revamped premise, which it seems to do every year, so it's a good jumping-on point. And uh, to kind of attempt to connect Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. to the program I'm doing... (laughs) I'm still holding out hope to see Man-Thing on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. They did mention him in a throwaway line in Season 2, and since there is a version of Ghost Rider, why can't we see Man-Thing on TV? Other than the fact that the censors would go crazy. (laughs) Alright, that's all the semi-related news I have right now. Hopefully, there will be more in the future. So now... I want to take a quick break, and when I come back, I'll start talking about Adventure Into Fear, number 11, and the arrival of Steve Gerber. Hey, Michael. Hey, Dad. 
we need to record another new trailer. Another one? Yes. You know that we read comics and then talk about comics because as we've established, talking about comics you've not read is just dumb. Yeah, and you make me do it every Thursday. Well, we've moved. Have we? Yes, we have outgrown our old location. I don't feel like I've moved. And we have now moved to twotruefreaks.com. What was that again? Twotruefreaks.com. A-Kids Comics, still every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com. December 1972. The 60s were over. The ideological quest for change and the hope surrounding it was dying. The world seemed violent, decaying. A cynicism, a disillusionment seemed to be permeating society. Change wasn't coming, or at least not fast enough. And there was war, and there was terrorism, and crime, and you might as well just live for today because tomorrow wasn't guaranteed to come. You didn't do drugs to open the mind or experience the unknown. You did drugs to deaden the pain. The world was being stripped down so that any pretense of flash, any pomp, any circumstance was torn away or forgotten. As if to emphasize that point, in December 1972, the last man walked on the moon, and no one cared. In 1969, human beings walked on the moon for the first time. The future seemed bright. Anything seemed possible. Yeah, there were troubles, but if we could send a man to the moon, we could overcome anything. But just a mere three years later, the public lost interest. The last person to walk on the surface of the moon came home to very little fanfare, and we never went back. Try to come up with a better analogy for giving up on the future. And it is that cynical disillusionment that comics at this time existed in. The old ways, the old styles, didn't hold up as well, and so a new breed of writer and artist was emerging. Writers that were fully entrenched in what came before, but who wanted to do things differently, who had a different vision, a different voice. Censors and standards at the time wouldn't allow for anything too radical, but subversive themes and taboo topics started to seep their way into mainstream comics. Writers began to experiment, to take chances, and one of those experimental writers was Steve Gerber. Steve Gerber was writing copy for an advertising agency when he wrote his friend Roy Thomas, then editor at Marvel, for a job. You must help me, I'm dying, he wrote Thomas, and six months later, he was in New York working as a staff writer. He started doing fill-in work on titles like Iron Man, Daredevil, and Submariner. His work was quirky, inventive, and different. And before long, he was given his own books to write, including Man-Thing. Gerber said once that originally Man-Thing was not something he wanted to do. He felt the character was boring, limited. But then he realized that what he thought was a limitation was really a blank slate on which he could tell any story he wanted. And this is exactly what he did. Gerber took that mood of the time, that disillusionment, and channeled it. He was a satirist. He parodied and lampooned the prevailing notions of the time. Nothing was off-limits, be it a conservative, greedy land developer, or a peace, love, and happiness hippie, or anything in between. He took societal stereotypes and stripped them down, laid them bare for all to see the ridiculous and the foolish inherent in them. And in doing this, he showed how alone those people were. Aloneness was a common theme for Gerber. He wrote about outsiders, those on the fringes of society, and those in the highest positions of power, and always they were found to be isolated, empty, even those, or especially those, who were superhuman, exceptional, or gifted in some way. 
And the more powerful one became, the more alone that person became. He used titles like Man-Thing as macabre theaters to expose the soul. But he did this in a fun and playful way. There are demons and wizards and cultists and hippies. There are Vikings and barbarians, suicidal clowns and a talking duck. By being over-the-top and bizarre, he could catch you off guard. There are many moments of poignant revelation hidden in those wacky adventures. All of this comes together in Gerber's run on Man-Thing. Steve Gerber took what could have been a throwaway Monster of the Week formula, and he gave it a vibrancy, a unique and individual spin that's truly all his own. And it all begins here in Adventure into Fear, number 11, The Night of the Nether Spawn. Cover dated 1972, scripted by Steve Gerber, pencils by Rich Buckler, Jim Mooney Inks, Jen Izzo Letterer, Roy Thomas Editor, The Cover, by Neil Adams. On the cover, two children sit in the swamp by lantern light, drawing a pentagram in the dirt with a stick. Behind them, Man-Thing looms large and menacing, reaching a clawed hand towards them. The Haunter of the Swamp, the cover copy reads. In the swamp, Bobby and Jennifer, a brother and sister, attempt to cast a spell reading from an old spell book. Man-Thing observes from a distance. Jennifer, the oldest, casts a spell in a mystic circle. Nothing seems to happen, so they head back to town, thinking they failed, all the while not noticing the hole opening in the sky just above the circle. Man-Thing notices, however, and from it, what looks like a tiny dragonfly emerges, but grows until it reveals itself to be a winged demon worm thing. It flies off after the children. Back in town, Bobby and Jennifer decide to see a movie after being bullied by a couple of cliches. During the film, the flying demon worm thing smashes through the screen with a foom, sending the crowd into panic. But Man-Thing arrives, the first time he's left the swamp since his transformation, to save the day. He grabs the demon worm thing and it burns at his touch, dissolving into ashes at his feet. Well, that was easy, but not so fast. From the ashes, the demon rises again in its true man-like form, the nether spawn. The nether spawn begins to beat the crap out of Man-Thing, who seems confused. He's never really felt pain or weakness before. It seems the swamp is somehow a nexus of power that the Man-Thing is tied to. He stumbles off, back to the swamp, with the nether spawn in pursuit. Bobby and Jennifer realize that, because they've summoned the demon from the Book of Magic, only by destroying the book will he be defeated. A leap of logic for sure, but not an incorrect one. They head off back to the swamp to retrieve the book, because they left it there for some reason. The nether spawn continues his beatdown of Man-Thing, until he is thrown face down into the murky waters of the swamp. The demon gloats over the prone body, but the power of the swamp revitalizes Man-Thing, giving him back his strength, and he rises from the water to confront a surprised and now terrified demon. Man-Thing beats him with a tree. This gives Bobby just enough time to set the Book of Magic spells on fire, which sends the nether spawn back to the nether world from whence he came. The children thank the Man-Thing, calling him friend, Confused, the Man-Thing stumbles back into the swamp, knowing that he understands some emotions, like fear and loathing. But what about love? So in the lead-in, I made a big to-do about Gerber being a satirist. To be fair, that's not really on display here. This story is basically a supernatural horror story. It uses 
Many of the tropes that were popular at the time, demons and Satanism and mystical cults, were all the rage back in the 70s. Possessions and the devil were everywhere back in the day. So it would seem that Gerber was simply taking a popular idea of the time and working it into his book. And to a certain extent, that's true. But there's a lot more going on here. You see, he's making a complete break with what came before. The previous issues have focused on the origin first, and second, a rather clunky, in my mind, attempt to shoehorn Man-Thing into the greater Marvel Universe. By showing that Ted Salas was working on a super soldier serum and that AIM was the one trying to steal it and on and on, Marvel, it seemed, really wanted this big gloopy swamp creature to be a superhero in the traditional sense. But Gerber is having none of that. For the first time, he doesn't do a recap of the origin story. Instead, he goes straight for the weird. He jettisons all the previous characters that were introduced and inserts in their place demons and the supernatural. This sends a clear message that he wants nothing to do with what came before and is telling the story he wants to tell. He adds new elements that will become important as the series progresses. He adds children as the focus of the story. And by adding these children, he tones down the dire adult feel that the series started with. He adds an action-adventure feel to the horrors as well, and an innocence and a playfulness. At the same time, by adding the children to the horror, it changes the dynamic. Think about The Exorcist or The Omen. The supernatural stuff is scary, sure, but as it's happening to a child, that's what made it seem all the more disturbing. Now, Gerber doesn't go to that extreme, but there is that underlying current there. Gerber also adds the town as a setting. Up to this point, it's been nothing but swamp, swamp, swamp. By adding the nearby town, he opens up more possibilities for storytelling and more characters for Man-Thing to interact with, you know, besides just a secret government agent or a baby-killing redneck. Also, I want to point out that the town is called Citrusville. Now, calling a town in Florida Citrusville is a bit obvious. It would be like calling a place in Georgia Peachtown or a city in Pennsylvania Cheesesteakburg. Actually, now that I think about it, the original name for Philly was Cheesesteakburg. I'm pretty sure it was Benjamin Franklin who proposed that. Anyway, as an aside, and this will become apparent as the run progresses, Steve Gerber was not subtle about naming things. Places and people and things are named exactly what they are. There is really no guessing as to his intent in that regard. But again, that's something that will be pointed out in later episodes. To get back to the setting, let's mention the swamp. Gerber does something fascinating with the swamp itself. As I said, he's actively distancing himself from the greater continuity in order to tell the stories he wants to tell, but at the same time, he makes the swamp a nexus, a nexus of all realities to be precise, and he breaks away from the Marvel Universe while at the same time implying that his book is the center of all things that universe springs from. The man had gumption. Enough generalities, let's talk about some specifics. The first thing I want to point out is this is the first time we get the tagline, whatever knows fear burns at the Man-Thing's touch. Now, we've had burning Man-Thing before, which you should really get some ointment for, but this is the first time we hear the official tag that will pretty much make an appearance in all stories going forward. There are some attempts at humor. When the demon worm flies out of the movie screen, a guy in the corner says, holy cow, 3D, far out which is so Saturday morning cartoon, it's ridiculous and it's silly, but kind of charming. And Bobby and Jennifer are bullied by a couple of punks from Mayberry, apparently, using such cutting barbs as, are you a girl or a ghoul? And then punctuating that statement with the words, 
Ooga Booga. And then the other asks why they don't just walk through walls. They really need to step up their bullying banter. But the interesting thing here is that there's a little missable detail. These bullies, it's revealed, first started to harass them earlier in the day at the head shop. Doesn't seem like much, but it's just an example of little things slipping in past the censors. And this kind of detail will continue. The fight between Man-Thing and the Nether Spawn is fun. Lots of power blasts, sorry, mystic force blasts, and some first-class monologuing from the Nether Spawn. I really like the four-panel sequence of Man-Thing rising from the water. The reader sees it over the shoulder of the demon. It's very cinematic. You could almost see the scene happening in a movie or on a TV show like, perhaps, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. In fact, maybe there could be a spin-off, you know, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Citrusville. It could star Bobby Morse and Lance Hunter as special agent demon hunters solving supernatural crimes with the help of their giant swamp friend. I like that idea, and I think someone should make it happen. The burning of the book to send the demon back to hell is very convenient, and they left it in the swamp after they were done with it, which is odd. I mean, presumably, it's a pretty old book. Even if it wasn't a book of magic, it's still got to be valuable, right? I'm sure it's leather-bound, gilded edges, probably some cool illustrations. No doubt it's a first edition. Come on, kids, take care of your stuff is what I'm saying. I suppose it's meaningless since they burn it, but still, have some respect for books. Come on. But overall, this is a straightforward monster story, something not uncommon for the genre at that time, but it lays the groundwork for a brand new direction that the book will take. A new tone, a new attitude, and a feeling that anything can happen. That's right, there's a new sheriff in town, and his name is Steve Gerber. Okay, I'll take a quick break, and when I come back, I'll talk about what's coming next. Hello, everyone. My name is Paul Matthew Carr, also known as Daddy Elk to my internet friends, and I like to make stuff up and write it down. Occasionally, I'll take those written-down stories and read them aloud into a microphone to record them for others to listen to later. These bits of audio are collected into a neat little program called the ElkCast, and it's guaranteed to make you smile. Unless it doesn't, because life is a rich tapestry of sadness and euphoria peppered throughout a fragile existence, and no one person can really guarantee happiness in a complex, ever-changing, and diverse world. But I can tell you this. If you listen to the show, you'll not only get the aforementioned story, but also the story behind the story, anecdotes, and inspiration. And if you're not careful, you just might learn something. Spoilers, you won't learn anything. But you might be entertained, so why not give it a shot? Listen to The Elkcast, a storytelling podcast with me, Paul Matthew Carr. You can find it on multiple listening venues like iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And online at daddyelk.com. You won't be disappointed. Unless you are, you know because of the whole tapestry thing. I probably could have sold that better. Okay, thanks everybody for listening. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen to me ramble. I do want to point out that I will be trying in the future, desperately trying, to get these out at a much faster rate. I confess that I am notoriously terrible about hitting deadlines, especially self-imposed deadlines, but I am aware of my limitations and I am working diligently to rectify them. Uh, So basically, I'm hoping to get these up quicker. (laughs) I'm I'm hoping to get my man thing up quicker. Uh, Perhaps Viagra will help. And and if my podcast lasts more than four hours, I'll have to seek medical attention. (laughs) Okay, I'm a child. Ignore me. Anyway, all that is to say that I will be posting episodes at a quicker rate going forward. Now, all that is left is to say... 
You've been listening to The Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. The Nexus of All Realities is a Daddy Elk production. Man-Thing and all related titles are copyright Marvel Comics, and no infringement is intended. You can contact the show via email at nexus at daddyelk.com or online at nexusofallrealities.com or daddyelk.com slash nexus, and leave a comment on individual episodes. You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And if you head on over and leave a review, I'd appreciate it, and I'll be your best friend. The Nexus of All Realities is for entertainment purposes only. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Okay, everybody, that's it for today. Next time, Adventure into Fear number 12, Man-Thing, tackles racism and police stereotypes. No choice of colors. Thanks again for listening, everyone. Bye.